Satnam Sangera, it's brilliant to have you with me on 20 Questions With. I think that we share one important, I mean, we may share more things, but one important bit of personal history, which is that we have both dressed up as giant rabbits on live TV. Oh, really? Were you a news bunny? Well, it wasn't a news bunny. You did it for live TV, didn't you? I did, yeah. The, the channel Live TV, which is now disbanded. Whereas I did it at Easter time as a gimmick on the old BBC One show this week that I was a producer on. Oh, oh that your version has more dignity than mine. I did it because I couldn't get any work experience anywhere else. So I was reduced onto the channel that produced Topless Darts. And yeah, I would have to get dressed up as a bunny on the hour and dance out the news. Crikey. Well, that's a far cry from Empire Land, <laughs> your best-selling book about empire and how imperialism has shaped modern Britain. Also a far cry from Stolen History, the book that followed that, and Empire World. That Empire World is how British imperialism has shaped the globe. So, I mean, we don't need to go book by book, but that's your new book. I, I want to tease out, if I can, over the next 20 questions, some of those themes and also talk a little bit about you yourself, because you wrote a memoir, The Boy with the Top Knot, and that was adapted several years after it came out as a book. It was adapted for BBC Two. You've worked extensively for the Financial Times in the past, haven't you? And you have written, you've had a column for the Times. So you're a highly respected journalist and a highly respected writer or, or author. And it's a great pleasure, as I say, to have you on the podcast. May I start by just asking you about why you decided to tackle these themes of imperialism? A complete accident, to be honest. I was actually intending to write a novel uh, about this guy called Dean Mohammed, who was one of the first Indians to ever come to Britain. And I began researching his life and I thought, oh, I better learn something about empire because he was came from India with the East India Company uh, officer. And as I was researching the history, I realised I knew nothing about it. And actually, lots of people around me knew nothing about this history. And yet, British Empire was the biggest thing we ever did as a country. It's one of the biggest things that ever happened to the world, you know, covered a quarter of the planet influenced a large part of the world beyond that quarter. And so the research became more interesting than the novel. And so I ended up writing this kind of beginner's guide to the British Empire. I feel like I don't know nearly enough about the British Empire. And that shames me. And I don't know whether that's my own fault or the fault in part of my education, the fault of society, of where we are as a country. And the curriculum may have changed substantially since I was a child. One question that could have eats away at me is how on earth did Britain control such great swathes of the planet? How did how did we do it? Yeah, it's complicated because every bit of empire was controlled differently, really. Empire was different things at different times. It was different things in different parts of the world. It was different things in different parts of the day. An Indian in the late 19th century might have had a positive experience with empire in the morning. A colonial officer might have helped him sort out a dispute with his neighbour. And then in the evening, he might have had a horrible experience of imperial racism. So it's an incredibly complex thing. I sometimes draw the analogy to a school because it's tempting to think of empire as a school, as you know, the headmaster in London, in his office, all the colonies are classrooms, except empire works nothing like that. Partly because it could take six months to get a message from the headmaster's office to one of the classrooms. Sometimes there was a crisis in the classroom the headmaster heard about it in London, sent some people to investigate it and commissioned a report, and then they intervened. Sometimes people were left entirely alone to make up their own rules in these colonies or classrooms. So it was a deeply com complex thing, which is part of the reason why we struggle to understand it. 
What do you say to people who still today will say that they are proud of the British Empire? I would say your feelings have got nothing to do with understanding history. Whether you're proud of empire or whether you're ashamed of empire is entirely irrelevant. History is an intellectual exercise. It's about trying to understand it. It's not about trying to weigh up the good and the bad. You know, you can't weigh up, you know, miles of railway built in India against millions of lives in, that were cost in famine or in the potato famine in Ireland and so on. It's an absurd way of looking at history. History is not a phone case that you're reviewing on Amazon. It's deeply complex. I think the people who tend to view it in that way, I sometimes say, look, if you were studying the climate over the last 300 years, would you say, I only want to study the sunshine or I only want to study the rain? That wouldn't give you a good sense of the climate. It's the way they interacted and all the weather in between that gives you the sense of what actually happened. And it's the same for empire. Not only was it complex, I realised Actually, it was entirely contradictory in that, you know, empire involved slavery, involved anti-slavery. Lots of British colonies ended up with democracy. Lots of them ended up with deeply troublesome geopolitical chaos. The empire spread the free press. It spread press censorship. It was a bunch of massive contradictions. I'm going to ask you another competitive question, completely ignoring, therefore, what you've just said. Do you feel that the British Empire has had a bigger impact on the world, which is the focus of the third of those three books of yours that I've mentioned, or a bigger impact on us in Britain? I think uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to hedge that question by saying both. I mean, if you look at the news, it's hard to pick up the Times on any day without seeing two or three stories which were created by the British Empire. At the moment, we were bombing Yemen, right? Guess what? We were in Yemen, in Aden, and also bombing that part of the world for similar reasons, trying to protect our trade routes in the 19th century. Palestine, that's the situation, Israel-Palestine, is a situation that we helped create when we were in charge after World War One. There's a massive controversy about Australia Day a few weeks ago. Is it something to be proud of, or is it really an invasion or genocide day? But then also, it explains so many things about our daily life in Britain. I mean, tea. Tea is a national drink in Britain and in India because of the British Empire. All those cities around the world named after British places, Birmingham, Plymouth, none after Wolverhampton, my hometown, though, causes me some pain. But all those corporations like BP, HSBC, Shell, P&O, all set up in empire. So I would say you need to understand the British Empire to understand the world, but also to understand daily life in Britain. May I just interject to say that I was at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium the other day, in fact, last weekend, to watch Wolverhampton Wanderers beat Spurs 2-1. Did this make you happy? Are you a Wolves fan? This doesn't count. I am a Wolves fan, and that, that did make us happy. We're having a, a strange season where we're losing to small teams and beating giants like Spurs, once giants. Where did or how did racism fit into British imperialism? And I think you believe or think that there was a shift. Yeah, I mean, race wasn't a constant thing. It intensified in the 19th century with the emergence of weird racial science and also, you know, certain events such as abolition when black people didn't behave in the way that white people wanted to, intensified racism, but also the Indian mutiny of the 18, of 1857 when, or the Indian War, First War of Indian Independence, as the Indians call it, when the British felt betrayed by Indians and suddenly saw empire in a very racialized way. But we forget that, you know, the racial science 
that found its ultimate manifestation in the Holocaust. You know, when it, it first emerged, it had a distinctly British flavor. It became something else in Germany and it became something else in America. But the British were massively involved and the empire was a massive testbed for these absurd racial theories. One of the racial theories being that the Sikhs, and I'm a Sikh, were somehow a martial race. You know, as you can see, looking at me, there's nothing intrinsically martial about me. But so powerful was that idea. It, it's still today the prism through which the Sikhs see themselves. But there were other ideas like, you know, certain black people weren't, were inclined to be lazy and wouldn't work unless compelled. You know, a racist idea that kept slavery going. Even today, the surveys show that certain people in Britain think that certain races are born to work harder than others. And I would say that's a direct legacy of the absurd uh, racial science and racism of British Empire. You talk about racial science. How is it possible for British people to treat other human beings with the degree of evil that they did to enslave them? As part of your journey through these books, your research and then your writing of them, have you begun to be able to understand how one person could do that to another? Yeah, I think partly it was possible because it was distanced. This was the whole thing with the British Empire. It happened abroad. So British people could be quite ignorant about where their sugar came from, where their tea came from. Why think about it? You know, it was only when the realities were brought to them by campaigners that they began to think about it. But also, it was possible because of money. And the amount of wealth produced was phenomenal. And we often forget that the royal family were hugely involved in this miserable business too. I mean, the Royal African Company, which was chaired from royal palaces, Whitehall Palace, sent more Africans across the Atlantic than any other institution in the history of the transatlantic slave trade. And that's something that's only just beginning to be understood now. I don't think the royal family were aware of it until campaigners made it clear to them within the last year or two. So it's amazing how long it's taken for people in Britain to understand what happened, like centuries. You've spoken already in this podcast about the importance of understanding history, but actions, decisions consequences can flow from history. Where do you stand on reparations? Yeah, reparations, you know, British people tend to clutch their pearls when you mention the phrase reparations. And, you know, sometimes the argument is abstract and absurd. I mean, there was a judge at the International Court of Justice recently who said that Britain owned 18 trillion pounds in reparations to the Caribbean nations. And I don't realistically think that's going to ever be paid. But we forget that reparations for imperial enterprises has kind of begun. Ireland was an imperial colony. The Good Friday Agreement, I would say, was an act of post-colonial truth and reconciliation. It involved apologies, it involved arguably money being paid, right? And I would say that process has been successful. It means, it means that actually we have a healthier relationship with Ireland than ever before. Also in Kenya, the British state was sued by the victims of the Mau Mau scandal and had to pay out, I think, £20 million in compensation. William Hague, the Foreign Secretary, apologised. The royal family went there recently. The King Charles went to Kenya and talked about it. Again, I think that process, while painful for the British and for the Kenyans, has resulted in a healthier relationship. And it continues. The Church of England has paid £100 million in reparations to the descendants of the enslaved. Individual families like the Gladstones, the Trevelyans and the Rentons are paying compensation and reparations. So... This is not an abstract argument. It has started. It's just we've done it in the most reluctant way imaginable. 
You talk of we when you talk about the British, of course, because you are British. I'm wondering whether the fact that we have many descendants of subjects of the British Empire living here in Britain, who are British like yourself, has had an impact on the way perhaps we are now re-evaluating our imperial past. Yeah, in this culture war and empire we've had over the last three or culture war over the last three or four years, often imperial historians and I are accused of talking about this stuff and encouraging division by talking about these difficult subjects. And I feel the exact opposite. I feel like this is history that unites us because so many people in Britain have a direct link to this history. Their parents might have been involved as imperialists or worked in empire. They might be children of the colonized like I am or grandchildren. Even if they're not, they will have experienced, you know, tea, sugar, cotton. You know, they would have experienced the benefits of the empire. And so I do think this is history that unites us. And I do say we even though apparently one of the first things you're taught when you do history at university is to never say we, because it wasn't you. But I say it on purpose as a way of indicating that I don't want this to, I don't want, I'm not talking about this difficult stuff with the aim of dividing. I think this is history that unites almost all of us. Where did racial entitlement fit in? We, we touched on racism, but racial entitlement, the idea that the white man was entitled to boss around supposedly inferior populations or indeed to loot the wealth that they found in those countries in those lands where, where do you think that came from what i asked you about how it was possible for one man to enslave another but where did this sense of entitlement emerge from do you think how was that allowed to foster where was the sense of perspective yeah i guess this is a chicken and egg situation was it racism that led to lots of white people lording it over lots of brown people? Or was it the fact that they just happened, lots of white people ten, just ended up ruling over a bunch of brown and black nations that led to the racism? It's a complicated question. I think it's probably more the latter. But if you want to get a sense of it, I mean, White Man's Burden is a good place to start. That poem by Rudyard Kipling, it's not... People don't tend to recite it now, although I bet Boris Johnson could probably recite it from beginning to end. But that poem written by Rudyard Kipling, one of our most famous imperialists, that was written to the Americans to encourage the Americans to do in the Philippines what the British had done with their empire in India and Africa. And just read that poem and that gives you a full sense of how the thinking came about and how entrenched it was. I mean, the phrase white saviour nowadays really gets people's backs up. Bob Geldof is going very cross about it in the last week. But actually, if you went back to the 19th century and called the average British colonialist a white saviour, they wouldn't have heard seen that as an insult because that's what they saw themselves as, because they were spreading, in their view, British civilization, you know, anti-slavery. They were stopping savage activities like sati, the burning of widows on funeral piles. And it was seen as an entirely positive thing. But I think, to go back to your question, I think it mostly came about by the fact that the British suddenly found themselves running a quarter of the world and in charge of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of black and brown people, and they were white. So why wouldn't they think they they weren't the master race? I asked you earlier about how Britain was capable of running or ruling over such huge swathes of the world. And clearly, it did involve participation 
from, I was going to use the phrase host communities, but they obviously weren't host communities because they didn't have much say in it or any say in it. To what extent did local populations and power structures within local populations help the British to, to run an empire? Oh, absolutely. It was essential. I mean, there were very, there weren't many areas where the British directly ruled. I mean, even in India, which is seen as the, the you know, most obvious illustration of direct rule, the British often hived out certain areas to the Maharajas, you know, it's where the princes and the kings were, were in charge of communities and the British were in charge of other communities. In places like Nigeria, they got rid, initially got rid of a lot of the leaders and then realised they couldn't run the place. They needed they needed them. So they recreated all these new leaders, so-called warren chiefs. And nowadays, you know, you go to Nigeria and there's thousands of people calling themselves princes and kings and it all goes back to empire where the British created these people out of nowhere. And actually, it only goes far as far back as empire. But that's a reflection of the fact that the British very, you know, didn't always or very rarely ruled directly. If you think of the size of the empire, you know, there just weren't enough people to do it in Britain. To what extent do you think that empire informs the relationship today between Britain and India? Because India, of course, now is a massive economy, huge population lots of wealth, still lots and lots of poverty, but in many ways a highly developed country. How do you see our relationship with India? I think people in Britain are very unaware of what's happening in India in that it's an increasingly confident and actually anti-imperial place. There's a massive official programme of decolonisation there where Modi is systematically trying to get rid of all traces of colonialism. So he wants to teach medical degrees in non-English languages. He's um, getting rid of the statues. He talks about himself as being the first true Indian leader because so many other prime ministers were educated at Oxbridge, you know. But his definition of imperialism is controversial, to say the least, because he includes the Muslim Mughal leaders amongst them. He talks about, I think, a thousand years of colonialism. And um, that is highly controversial and, and, I think, suspect. But... There's only so far this decolonization can go because I don't see Modi getting rid of cricket. I'd like to see him try. I don't see him changing the direction of the traffic. I don't see him trying to you know, get rid of the popularity of Western dress. So there's only so far this decolonization can go. Fascinating to hear you talk about statues in India. I don't think you feel that tearing down statues in Britain is particularly constructive to be honest, I don't care about statues. That's my main feeling in that I feel like there's a lot of focus on statues and they don't matter because they're street furniture. We didn't even notice them until recently. The amount of fuss that is caused by statues is ridiculous. Statues are not history, you know. They are one person's view of history at one point in history. If they're torn down, it doesn't matter. We haven't stopped discussing the Nazis because we've torn down all the statues or... Stalin, because all these statues have gone, right? I don't think it matters if they're torn down or not. I think it, the other legacies are much more profound, like racism, multiculturalism, and museums, politics, um, the legacies of slavery in the Caribbean. These are much more important things. What is your relationship personally with India? I'm on my father's side, descended from Jewish refugees from Hitler in Austria. And so I have no relationship with Austria. My grandparents were kicked out of Austria. And I mean, I say I have no relationship. I, I don't feel Austrian 
I don't feel proud to come from Austria. There's nothing against current day, present day Austrians, but I don't feel proud of that. I feel proud, if that's the right word, of my Jewish identity. And certainly that's a really important part of me, even though it's just on one side. Do you have a different relationship to India, to the one I've just described that I have with Austria? I think there's profound reasons why you would not feel any attachment with Austria, frankly. It makes total sense. I have a very complicated ratio with India because I'm Sikh, and Sikhs are a minority faith in India and facing all all minority groups in India, I think, are facing challenges because increasingly, in the face of Hindu nationalism, India sees itself as a Hindu nation. So that puts Muslim Sikhs in quite an awkward position. But then, you know, I am also deeply British and I'm probably slightly separated from my Sikh identity as well. All I know is that my identity and my family history is almost entirely shaped by the British. The Sikh identity, the the, the Sikh demographics were created by the British because the British fetishized the Sikhs as this martial race. So many people converted to Sikhism in the 19th century. The size of the Sikh community is a reflection of that, as is the way we see ourselves, as is the fact that we took up opportunities to do, emigrate within empire, you know. So, and also the fact that so many hundreds of thousands of us fought in both world wars. So, in a way, I have a closer relationship to the British Empire than I do, I think, to India. Something that emerges in your writing is the fact that for centuries we've had people of colour living in Britain. Clearly, in the in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, we had relatively large immigration. We've now got a lot of immigration, but we've had people in co- of colour living in Britain for centuries. And that, I think, perhaps can be overlooked. Could you just shed a little bit more light on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I would say it's my view that, you know, Jewish people are of colour, you know, and Jewish people have been here for millennia, right? Goes back a very long time. But, you know, there were black people in Henry VII's and Henry VIII's courts there were, as I was talking about Dean Mohammed, he was here setting up a curry house in the 1800s, right? There were millions of people from the empire who fought in both world wars. And yet, I was never told that. I probably sat through dozens of Remembrance Day services in my life, and no one ever mentioned that the Sikhs, the Indians, the Africans there. No one ever told me that the Africans served in huge numbers in World War One, and then they weren't invited to the peace march. The celebrations afterwards were racist reasons. The amnesia is deeply troubling and it makes it makes me very, very cross. Have you got a sense through your investigations of British empire of how it compares to other global empires? Yeah, I guess um, people often say, why don't you study the why don't you study the French Empire, the Belgian Empire? That's much worse. And it's like I study the British Empire because I'm British. And it's what I'm interested in. And also, it was the biggest empire in human history. And also, I think there's a lot of amnesia around it. But yeah, I mean, we aren't the only country which has has problems with our imperial history. Russia, at the moment, has a much bigger problem with its own imperial nostalgia, so much so that it's invaded another country, right? Um, There was a survey done recently of European nations about how nostalgic they were about their respective empires. And actually, we were only the second most nostalgic, the most nostalgic were the Dutch. And uh, you can see why, tiny nation. And actually, the Dutch Empire was way ahead of the British Empire at one point. You know, we were trying to catch up with the Dutch. Watford went to the war with the Dutch. And they've probably got lots of unprocessed feelings about empire. Although I suspect because 
of World War II and their history, you know, they've had a dark night of the soul about their history because a lot of the stuff happened in their own nation when it comes to World War II. Whereas, because we're an island, I think we tend to view international history as entirely separate from British history. Not many people, for example, might know of the savage cruelty and the extent of it of Leopold of Belgium in the Congo. Yeah, yeah, that, absolutely. That... And the legacy there, I mean, the way in which the natural resources of the Congo are being mined today for battery production echo the exploitation of the Belgian Empire. But also, I would say that the Belgians, the sense I get, are a bit more on it in terms of their history and apologizing and talking about reparations i get the sense that 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 argument is that conversation is happening in a much healthier way than it is in britain earlier in trying to understand slavery you talked about distance but was there a sort of conscious or self-conscious propaganda machine within britain that helped to sustain the empire or was that not needed well he helped sustain slavery gosh it did there's a great book on this called the interest by michael taylor and he outlines the extent to which the planter lobby fought the abolition of slavery at every single stage. There's a popular idea that the British spontaneously abolished slavery when they realised it was evil. It wasn't that way at all. It's a very slow process. First of all, the slave trade was abolished. And many a lot later, slavery was abolished. Even when slavery was abolished, there was a period called apprenticeship where the enslaved were obliged to work for free, you know still facing the punishments that they always faced. And there was nothing instant about it. And also, of course, famously, the enslaved weren't compensated. It was the slave owners who got £20 million of compensation. But that shows you how the way in which the planter lobby behaved like not oil companies do now. You know, They were powerful. They bought up political influence and MPs, and they fought it every stage of the process until eventually they were forced to give up. And even then, the the planters replaced the enslaved with indentured laborers who were, you know, one million Indians were sent across the empire to replace the enslaved, who were then, these people were then exploited in very similar ways to the enslaved. So there, there was nothing instant or intrinsically benign about any of the process. Was the fall of the British Empire inevitable and Looking at all three of these books, what do you hope that your readers would take away from them? Take away. Okay. Was it inevitable? I would say that actually in many ways, empire continues. So, or that there are new empires. Look at China now with its influence across Africa. It's replicating what the British Empire did. America expanded in many ways similar to the British Empire. Even today, the the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council on Parliament Square is the final court of appeal for 26 countries. Um, there are still colonies, British colonies, the Falklands and so on. So, And there's all sorts of other ways in which the British Empire continues to have influence, not least through education across the world. So I would say it was not inevitable, and in some ways it continues. What do I hope to achieve through this? I, just, I want us to have a healthier nation, relationship with the world. I mean, with Brexit happening... We are trying to redefine our relationship with all sorts of nations, but we don't know, we don't seem to know what we did when we were last in these nations when we during the days of empire. So if we're trying to get a new trading relationship with Mauritius, we should probably understand what we did there with indentured labor. 
if we're talking to the Caribbean nations or inviting them over for the coronation, we should probably understand how angry they are about the legacy of slavery. We probably shouldn't send the royals on that disastrous visit that we sent them on in the Caribbean a couple of years ago, where they stood on the back of a Land Rover and waved at the locals. We do not understand what we did to the world and we need to understand it because we can't go around lecturing people on democracy, the environment and human rights without understanding we have distinctly patchy records in the, those things because of the empire. How do we better understand it, reading your books and being educated about it? Fine. How do we show the rest of the world that we understand it better than we do? I think, uh, well, I think other books are available, but also, you know, we we have an instinctive tendency to intervene, like, we're intervening on Palestine at the moment. And it's like, I've not seen any politician reflect, even for a British politician, reflect for more than a second or two about the fact that we helped create that situation. Occasionally, we have moments of insight. David Cameron once said, in relation to Kashmir, you know, we shouldn't really get, get intervene in situations that we helped create in the first place. I'd like to see a bit of humility, you know. I'd like to see the royals, when they lecture people on animal conservation, reflect on the fact that their own family shot a lot of animals throughout the 19th century. Prince Philip shot a tiger in the 1960s on camera. It'd be much more powerful if they mentioned that when they started lecturing the world on these issues. And I think that applies to the nation in general. But where we help to create a mess or dysfunction, isn't there a greater responsibility for us to at least attempt a benign influence, not to lecture, but to influence? I'm not sure how much our influence has helped in Iraq. Iraq is a country we helped make unstable, you know, by introducing this Hashemite monarchy, creating the conditions for Saddam Hussein to come up in the first place. And then we're suddenly embarking on a war. That is a situation where there was no reflection at any point. And uh, even Ethiopia, it was a country where endlessly we were raising money in the 80s for Ethiopia. There was never any reflection on how we stripped that country of its assets when we took over after World War II. So at the moment, I see absolutely no reflection at all. And we need we need it because I think we look ridiculous to a lot of the world as we go around intervening. Two more questions officially. All right. Give us a sense of growing up in Wolverhampton I mentioned at the beginning that you wrote the memoir, The Boy with the Top Knot. Did you wear a turban as a boy? What was your experience like growing up? And as part of this question, how have you found being, you said how deeply British you are. You've talked also about your relationship with India or your complicated relationship with India. How have you found being a British Indian, if that's how you would describe yourself, correct me if I'm wrong, a British Sikh? How has your identity or racial and religious identity impacted your day-to-day life, do you think, and also impacted the arc of your life so far? Yeah, big question. Um, yeah, I grew up in a very working-class, very Sikh community. I couldn't speak English when I arrived at school. My dad is illiterate. No one in my family had gone to university. And I basically got a place at an independent grammar school um, with the help of some teachers. And so, you know, I guess my story is not just leaving my very closed, um, but very warm Sikh community in Wolverhampton, but it's also about changing class, about becoming middle class. When I, you know, I was working in a factory as a teenager on holidays, sometimes 90 hours a week. And that was what I was expected to do. So to become a writer when I couldn't even speak English and when 
my dad can't read or write. It's been an amazing journey. But I think British Sikhs in general are seen as a successful immigrant community in that they've managed to hold on to a lot of their traditions and their faith while integrating. And I would say I don't struggle with British multiculturalism. You know, my experience of British multiculturalism in Wolverhampton and in London is almost entirely positive. Often people, the people in this culture war and empire are often saying, you know, you shouldn't criticize British history because you should be proud of it. You should focus on the positives. But actually, I sense that they're not proud of Britain. They're often people on the right wing, they're complaining about Britain. They say they're proud, but actually they hate modern Britain. They hate, they hate, they hate everything that's happened to it, not least the way it's become deeply multicultural. But I don't see that. I see it. I think immigration has enhanced this country. I think it's helped build the NHS. It's made us wealthier. It's made us more interesting. It's definitely made the food better. And I see myself as proudly British Sikh, but I call myself Sikh, British Sikh, Londoner, a Wolfroonian, which means someone from Wolverhampton, depending on who's listening. So I see myself as all these things, and I don't see it as a contradictory thing. Immigration has also made our football better. It's made our cricket better. <laughs> Made our rugby better. It's good to see some British Asians coming through again in cricket. And we still have Moeen Ali and Adol Rashid. Now we've got Shoei Bashir and Rehan Ahmed. This this is a I think this is a positive step because we know how popular cricket is amongst some Asian communities, don't we? I think that's fair. Yeah, to... yeah. And so I would fail it... the cricket test because I actually don't like cricket. But I should do because I'm both British, obviously, and Indian. But um, I've never got into it. To see the strength of the love of the game within Asian communities, if that's not a hopeless stereotype, coming through into the England team is a good thing. It's a positive thing. No, absolutely. Yeah. And you see it in football as well. And that, you know, when I was growing up, Wolves fans were known for wearing KKK hoods to matches. I wasn't allowed of the house if there was a Wolves match down the street, right? But now, you go to a Wolves match, huge multicultural following. The captain at one point was, about five years ago, was a Punjabi, half Punjabi guy, you know? And I think sport in this country reflects the reality of Britain, which is that we are successfully multicultural. Final question. I want to get a sense, particularly now you've said you what you don't like or you're not interested in cricket. Give, give us a bit of a sense of your passions outside work, your interests, but also to just to reflect on something I read that upset me, which is that you don't really like doing literary events anymore in this country because some older members of the audience might sort of start hectoring you as part of this this culture war that you've already referenced. Is that still the case? And can that change? Because that seems a real shame. Yeah, it was horrible for about a year. I didn't do any events. But I'm not the worst person who's suffering the most. I mean, David Yorisoga, it's a matter of a, a record that he has a bodyguard. You know, at some events, Kareem Fowler, who's the historian who wrote the National Trust Report on colonialism, regularly had to call the police. And this is the consequences of this political culture war, you know. And so I stopped doing events because people were just being quite scary <laughs> around me and angry. And it's not always older people and it's not always white people. There's a lot of imperial nostalgia amongst Indians as well. But I have started doing events again and I get much more positivity now. I get such positivity. It's so me kids who are now studying history at university because they were inspired by my book and this book's being used as a teaching resource in thousands of schools 
So I'm trying to focus on the positives and I've done about 12 events. I've not had one piece of negativity. And that's the good thing about Britain. I think that people heard that I'd stopped doing events and they've turned up to show their support. And we need to remember that actually it's easy to focus on the negative, isn't it? But actually I do generally believe that people are good. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, I was talking to my mum the other day about the spike in anti-Semitism and she was saying that I think one can take heart from what she thinks is a fact. And I think I agree with her that the majority of people in this country are pretty good. doesn't mean that there aren't a da- dangerous minorities of all sorts of extremism, but I think I hope most people are pretty decent still in this country. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, anti-Semitism, I think about it a lot. And it's, you know, it's one, it's one of the most ancient hatreds. I think if you want to understand racism at all, you need to understand anti-Semitism and, it's very poorly understood how deep-seated it has been for centuries across the West. At the same time, there's Islamophobia in this country. Huge Islamophobia, yeah. Arguably, that gets more, that gets something of a free pass sometimes. It all feels like it does in the media, whereas, thankfully, anti-Semitism doesn't. So I mean, both Muslims and, and Jews in this country, perhaps for different as well as overlapping reasons, get really tough time. And see, Yeah, yeah how- I, tried this, I tried to, on social media which has seems to have been broken by recent controversy and also Israel-Palestine. I try to focus on those Muslims who speak out about anti-Semitism and the Jewish people who speak out for Palestinians because these are the people who are going to find a solution. And there are lots of them. There are lots of them out there, but it's, it's, quite, it's quite a dark time, isn't it? You didn't answer the other part of my question, which is about your passions, your interests. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess if you're a writer, you kind of, your life is your... Your kind of work is your hobby, but I guess I'm really into cars. I used to be anyway. I used to write about cars. But a column, didn't you? Yeah, I did that for about 15 years. But I drove every car I ever wanted, and now I don't care about cars. Um, I'm really, really into music. So obsessed with live music and just listening to music all the time. And then I'm obsessed, actually, weirdly, with antiques. Is the... After watching lots of daytime TV. Are antiques becoming popular again? I'm convinced that because of all these antiques uh, daytime TV shows that there's going to be a generation of young people radicalised and who are going to become antiques traders in about 10 years' time. This is the gr- the growth industry, man. I said at the beginning that you've had a column with the uh, Times. Yeah, I, just forgive me because I, I don't read it as regularly as I should, although I do have a subscription. Are you still a columnist at the Times? I'm not. I've, I gave up my column uh, to write books, but I write regularly for them. I do a couple of pieces a month. Yeah, but they're not regular. Is that part of the pleasure of what you do, that you do the long form, the book, but you also get that sort of, I don't know, whether it's an adrenaline hit or what it is, of doing a, a shorter form piece as well? Yeah, I love writing journalism. I've just been doing it my, my whole professional life. I like the speed of it because, you know, books take years. <laughs> and it's also great if you have something to say, to be able to say it, to have a platform. And also it's nice to have colleagues because your books are great, but, you know, you see your agent wants a every six months <laughs> it's great to go in the office and uh, steal the stationery and have a gossip satnam sangara thank you so much for answering my 20 questions well, thanks for having me on